Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. I am so excited to bring you today's discussion. We are going to be talking about the atonement. What happened on the cross? Why did Jesus die? Does the idea that God required the blood sacrifice of his only son turn him into some kind of cosmic child abuser? We're going to talk about all this with a special guest in just a moment. My guest today is Mike Winger, who is an associate pastor at Hosanna Christian Fellowship in Bellflower, California. Mike is the featured teacher of Bible Thinker Online Ministry, and you can go to that website at BibleThinker.org. It's a fabulous website, fabulous ministry. He's a Calvary Chapel guy, graduated from their school of ministry in Costa Mesa in 2006. Uh, Mike does a Facebook Live every Tuesday, and so you can connect with him on Facebook and watch those videos and interact and ask questions, and you can find them archived there on YouTube as well. And I love listening to Mike because he will tackle the most interesting questions, and he's such a clear thinker and articulate communicator. So Mike, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. I've wanted to have you on for a while, uh, but then I saw your review of Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and I was like, okay, I, I have got to have him on to talk about this, because typically I'm all by myself over here in progressive Christianity land, and it's not mm-hmm. all that common for apologists to interact with the ideas of progressive Christian. So I was really excited to see that you had uh, done that review, and it was such an excellent analysis. And um, something that uh, you may not know is I'm also a Calvary Chapel girl. My oh, uh, nice. my dad, yeah, my dad got saved during the Jesus movement there in the late 60s and 70s, and my parents met and got married there. Chuck Smith married my parents and dedicated me as a baby. So um, now shortly after that, we moved to the San Fernando Valley, but it's, I've always considered Calvary Chapel to be my roots. So we have, we have kind of a common, a common uh, background there. Nice. 
Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank and thanks for so much for having me. It's it's an honor to get to to be asked to be on, and I'm just uh, really uh, privileged. Well, I'm I'm very very happy to have you on. Um, and when I've watched some of your videos, I'm always struck by the depth of your research. It's obvious that you spend hours and hours reading and researching the different topics you you talk about. How many hours would you say? You, how many hours do you think you spend prepping for each video that you do? Um. Well. <laughs> Probably more than I should. It probably depends <laughs> on the video. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, I always want to try to hear out different sides and I want to be able to answer just kind of embed in my, in my defense of biblical Christianity. I want to embed answers to the objections that those who have been indoctrinated by the other side, that, that those, those objections will be answered mm. in the things that I communicate. So I tend to spend a lot of time, um, I, I would be surprised if I spent only 10 hours to prepare for one of the teachings. Usually it's a whole lot more than that. And mm. sometimes, uh, it, it goes upwards of, you know, 40 hours for one, for one yeah. message, you know, in, in one hour teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the listeners, uh, including myself are thankful for that research. In fact, uh, I remember you saying, I watched your analysis of the theology of Bill Johnson from Bethel and how many hours of teaching of his, did you say that you watched in preparation for that? I can't remember, but it was a yeah. lot. Well, it was about 60 hours of his, of the teaching that they have, um, cause it's really hard to get to the bottom of what they're actually saying about things. They talk mm -hmm. a lot without giving you much to hold on to as far as what their theology is. So it just took a ton for me to kind of get to the bottom of it all and, yeah. um, took months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can find that on YouTube or on Mike's Facebook page archived somewhere. It's where he an analyzes the theology of Bill Johnson and Bethel. And it was very, very fair, very even handed, very balanced. Uh, but you know, just taking a biblical look at what's coming out of uh, Bethel there in Northern California. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the atonement. And, uh, this is sort of at the heart of, uh, my work, really, because I, I'm in the world of progressive Christianity quite a bit, and a lot of uh, questions surround the atonement with progressive Christians. And so recently, as I mentioned before, you reviewed Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And uh, again, I encourage listeners to go find that on YouTube and watch it. Uh, so much great stuff. But before we get into uh, Brian Zahn's view, uh, because we're kind of, kind of, we're going to facilitate our conversation around that book, because I have found it to be very representative of what I find in a lot of progressive Christian literature, that, that his view of the cross is very much representative of that movement. And, uh, but before we get into his specific view, I want to I talk about how Christians have historically understood the atonement, how we have historically understood what happened on the cross, why did Jesus die? And uh, so how, Mike, would you sum up the traditional Christian view of the atonement? Let's talk about some different atonement theories uh, and why Christians might use various metaphors and different language to describe what happened on the cross. Uh, well, you know, that's the question right there. Yeah. Like what exactly did Jesus do on the cross? Like what did, what did, what did that do? What did it accomplish for us? And the, the traditional view, the traditional Christian view is something we call penal substitutionary atonement. And each of those words is like really important as we define them. So penal substitution is the doctrine or the idea that Jesus suffered on behalf of sinners, the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. 
And so we have those three words in that in that doctrine, penal, because it's a penalty. We get the word penalty right in there, right? And it's a punishment for our sins. It was due. We we deserve to die as a result of our sins, to be separated from God. And um, so this is like a justice thing, a legal thing. This leads to legal metaphors to explain them, actually, that arise right from the Scripture. So Jesus suffered the penalty for our sin, and, and that's where we get our second word, substitution. Jesus, he goes in our place. It's not me suffering. It's not me dying. It's him dying for me. Our sin was imputed to Christ. It was dealt with by his death. And it solves this tension, this tension we see throughout uh, church history where they're trying to figure out how can God be holy, just, a holy, just God who judges and, and condemns sin, yet be merciful at the same time. Um, how does how does God accomplish both of these things without compromising either of them? And the answer is Jesus's penal substitution, so that God is able to forgive us yet while still dealing with our sins on the cross. Uh, Romans three twenty six it it summarizes it this way that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So He justly forgives us, which is uh, accomplished just only through Jesus Christ. And then we have that word atonement, which. Um, that word atonement goes back to this like old English word at one meant. That's actually what it really means when you break it down. The New yeah. Testament word for that is reconciliation. The idea is we're, we're being reconciled to God. Our relationship with God is being healed through Jesus's penal substitutionary uh, atonement. And scripture just abounds. I mean, this this is really, I say it's a traditional view like we see it in church history, but what, where we see it first is in the Bible. Um, Isaiah 53 is probably one of the best go-to passages for mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's describing not just that Jesus would go to the cross, but, but what it would mean and what it would accomplish. It's describing the atonement. And Isaiah 53, I'll just give you a, a little bit of it. It's just, it's so amazing. It's always it wrenches at my heart when I read this passage. Yes, yes. Yeah, but Isaiah 53, 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Like the reason was for our sin, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was, and he, listen to these words, the chastisement that brought us peace and here in those words, we see chastisement. Well, that's a penalty that brought us peace. Well, that's the atonement. It's penal atonement there. And if we read on, we get the substitution. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is, he's, in, he's substituted for us. Our iniquity is laid on him. And he's chastened or punished to bring us unity with God, peace. Um, it goes on, Isaiah 53 and verse 11, it says that he will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. And being a sin bearer is a is a very important Old Testament concept in the Levitical law. The sin bearer was like the, the priest or the offering that was bearing their sin so that they would be freed from their sins. In fact, Isaiah 53 goes a step further and it uses a technical Levitical term. Most people miss this. It calls Jesus the guilt offering. A guilt offering is a specific kind of Levitical offering that was meant to cover corporate sin. So when groups of people had sinned, they would bring a specific kind of offering. Leviticus calls it the guilt offering. And Isaiah 53 says that Jesus would be the guilt offering. um, The New Testament just constantly quotes Isaiah 53 as giving us the understanding of like what Jesus did for us on the cross. Even Jesus himself refers to it to explain what he's doing. Hmm. Um, anyway, the, the, yeah. the New Testament's just filled with uh, imagery and just descriptions that give us Jesus as our you know penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, Jesus is an offering for sin like the Day of Atonement offering that we read about. That's in Hebrews 9 and 10. And so these metaphors we get for penal substitution really draw from the text of Scripture. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God, and we think of the Passover Lamb, who is sacrificed so that the avenging angel would not would not attack the people of Israel or the people who were covered by the blood. You know, Jesus is the Lamb of God, or He's the High Priest who goes in our place to make atonement for us. We we get these metaphors right out of the pages of Scripture. Yeah. You know, but there's uh, there's other theories as well. Actually, there's more than you could shake a stick at called theories of the atonement, and mm-hmm. another one's called the classic theory or called the uh, Christus Victor view. And the idea here, if I could give kind of a brief summary, is that at the cross, Jesus accomplished a victory over Satan and the powers of darkness. Now, that's why it's called Christus Victor, right? Because he's Christ and he's the victor. He's getting a victory. And this is actually a biblical idea, too. When you when you hear this, if you know the New Testament, you're like, yeah, he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Um, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so we, we look at that and we go, yeah, that, that actually seems like a biblical view. But there's a subset of this view, this Christus Victor view. We had this in, in the early church um, called the ransom theory. And it's kind of like a subcategory of Christus Victor that God was paying a ransom to Satan to purchase us. Mm. And now this, of course, was like abandoned later on and really fought against by a lot of people uh, as time went by. Just thinking that that um, that Jesus was, was paying this, you know, this atoning thing to Satan and not to God. So um, they use weird metaphors like a like Satan was tricked. Um, mm. He was tricked by the humanity of Jesus, and so they use a fish hook metaphor. And they say, well, you know, you, the bait on the fish hook was Jesus's humanity. The hook was his deity. And Satan thought he could swallow up Jesus and take him, but he bit down onto the hook and he couldn't keep him down. And so Jesus rose victorious. So it's an interesting, interesting perspective. Uh, the ransom view is generally, you know, not received by people. It's generally rejected. But the uh, Christus Victor view, it, it actually does have some biblical basis to it. Um, it doesn't compete with the penal substitution view, but it has some interesting things that I think we should look at. Yeah. Then there's the, the moral example. Uh, the moral example view is the, that Jesus died on the cross as a demonstration of God's love, and he gave us a motivation to show love as well. And now again, you're going to go, wait, well, that's really biblical. Yeah, we're right. to follow Christ's example, forgive others as God forgave us, and and do unto others like Jesus did for us. And, you know, like when you wash the disciples' feet and he says, do you know what I've done for you? Now go and do this to each other. You know, be be a servant like me, forgive like I did. But the problem with um, some of these theories is when they're set up as being in opposition to penal substitution. Because while you can find some support for each of these, um, the one that has the most support is going to be the penal substitution of Christ. And if I say, for instance, the moral example theory is going to be used as a way of rejecting penal substitution, like it's he died as a moral example, but not in my place for my sin. Well, I have a couple problems there. I'm, I'm denying scripture. Scripture clearly says he did. I also turn the gospel into a kind of self-improvement message, mm, yes, um, which is antithetical to the, the gospel that all, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, um, and it doesn't really make sense. I mean, imagine this, that, that you know, you have a child who's, who's on the train tracks and I run up and I, I rescue your child from the train tracks, but I get hit by the train. You would see this as like a great act of love on my part for you and your child, for your family, very self-sacrificial love. But imagine that your child, you know, was, wasn't even on the tracks. You're, you're just, you guys are just walking around. There's train tracks near you. And, and there I go. And I look at you and I say, Elisa, I want you and your family to know how much I love you. So I stand on those tracks and I let that train plow me down. 
you would think I was insane. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, basically, the moral example of Christ only makes sense on penal substitution. It it just doesn't really... Yeah, and same with Christus Victor, really. It's only really possible if, if the substitutionary element of the atonement is present. Yeah, these other these other elements, these other you know sort of sides, uh, dimensions of the atonement, they grow out of the full understanding of of what Jesus did, which includes at its core penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. So so there's there's a couple misconceptions I see as I've studied this topic, and um, it's, I find it really interesting topic to research. Uh, but there's two common misconceptions that I see constantly, and I see it in Brian Zahn's material as well. And so I'm going to mention it. One of them is. They want to put these theories against each other as though it's pick one and ditch the others. And that's clearly not the case because multiple angles are supported by Scripture. We shouldn't ask which theory of the atonement is correct. We should say what truths about the atonement are are true. You know, our Mm, biblical. mm -hmm. So Jesus, yeah, he was a moral example. Yes, he defeated Satan. He also suffered the penalty due my sin so I could be forgiven. In short, you know, the penal substitution is central and it needs to be in place if we're going to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, yeah. This, yeah, the second misconception is historical confusion. And this I saw um, not only in Brian Zahn's book, but I saw in his debate with uh, uh, Dr. Michael Brown called the Monster God Debate. Um, mm-hmm. And he says that this penal substitutionary thing is a totally new thing. It just originated with John Calvin yeah, I watched I watched that debate and I and I thought that was so interesting because typically what I've heard people say is that it originated in the Middle Ages with Anselm. And so that was actually the first time I'd ever heard anyone say that they thought John Calvin had invented it, uh, which was an interesting point. I'm going to ask you in just a second to to talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, this whole ransom uh, theory idea, you know, the Bible uses language of ransom, but it doesn't imply at all that that ransom was actually paid to the to the devil. But an interesting thing is, um, are you familiar with Carl Truman? Uh, not by name. Okay, he's a reformed guy. He he taught at R. Uh, I think he taught at RTS. I could be wrong, uh, and and maybe he's not there anymore. But I listened to his uh, class on church history because he's a church historian primarily, and he's really convinced that C.S. Lewis taught the ransom to Satan theory in his Narnia books, which I thought was so interesting because a lot of people missed that. I, there's, I guess there's a scene yeah. and I, I read them, but it was ages ago. I've actually where, wondered that myself. Have you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he's not alone in that. Cause, cause it does kind of seem there you have, uh, I don't know if it's Aslan paying off the white witch or something that would, that would make it seem like that was what he thought. Yeah. It seems like the white witch has the rights to, to be the one who enacts justice on uh, on the, the the boy who uh, who betrayed the law, who broke the law, right. and so she's the one who gets to to do it because she has the the rights, so to speak. Yeah, it does feel that way. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about this historical confusion. Uh, you know, we, we hear from all over, oh, you know, this was invented in the Middle Ages, or this just originated in John Calvin. The original Christians had no concept of this. Speak to that. Okay, well, um, there's actually been lots of there's, – there's stuff out there on this. If people just Google it, spend some time on it, then they can easily find resources. Uh, Gary Williams is one uh, one guy who's written uh, his dissertation on the topic, and, and you can find a lot of free content as well on that. But I'll, let me just say this, that when we are saying penal substitution and then we quote a bunch of scripture for it, 
it doesn't really make a lot of sense off just off the top of my head. I'm kind of surprised to find out no one thought of this until 500 years ago or maybe, you know, 900 years ago. Um, that's kind of a shock to me because I'm like, but it's in Isaiah, but right. it's in the New Testament, but it's in Hebrews, but it's in Romans and Galatians. Like it's so it's just permeating the scripture. And sure enough, when you actually look at the historical, uh, you know, landscape, you see that it's being misrepresented by people who are attacking penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, the reality is a lot of the people who promoted things like Christus Victor or these other views, they also held penal substitution. Right. It wasn't an either or thing. And so we have quotes from people. Um, I'll, let me see. I'll give you um, a couple. We can go back to Clement of Rome in 95 AD. That's about when he wrote. Okay, this is first century. This is one of our oldest extra biblical texts from Christians. He says, because of the love he felt for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave his blood for us by the will of God, his body for our bodies and his soul for our souls. Jesus is, is the substitute. His, his blood was what saved us. And how did it happen? Well, his body for our bodies, his soul for our souls. Mm. Um, we can actually quote a lot of other, the epistle of Barnabas and things like this. They're extra biblical. They're not part of canon, but they show that this was not a new idea. Uh, one of the yeah. really clear examples is Eusebius of Caesarea. And he's writing in the, in the 300s. And uh, he says, and I'll just quote him to you. This is such a neat quote. Uh, and, and notice what scriptures he's quoting, because I've already read some of them to you, right? Like this is, this is not based upon um, church father's teaching, but this is rather these guys learning it from the Bible. And mm -hmm. so he says, thus the Lamb of God taketh, that taketh away the sins of the world became a curse on our behalf. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe but which we owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the curse of the forgiveness, the cause of the forgiveness of our sins, because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging, the insults and the dishonor, which were due to us and drew down upon himself the appointed curse being made a curse for us. Mm. And so some of these people are people who they would say are, would be supporting Christus Victor or other views, um, the reality is they didn't see these necessarily as competitive views. They just saw different elements of the atonement. And it's true that these, the church fathers, the first 500 years, they tended to focus more on uh, the uh, victory over Satan. They did yeah. tend to focus more on that. That is true. But we shouldn't take those quotes as thinking they were in opposition to penal substitution. We will be right back in just a moment with Mike Winger to talk more about the atonement. Uh, I just got back from the Propel experience in Pine Mountain, Georgia, which is a week-long camp-like experience for high schoolers. I got to talk to these students about the atonement, about the Bible. I got to share my story of walking through a significant time of doubt after an experience at a progressive Christian church. And this is what I love about Impact 360, is they exist to facilitate these experiences for students. But of course, we are well into the summer, so all of those experiences for this year are full, but they offer so much more. If you go to impact360.org, you'll find the Gen Z Lab, and this is your guide to leading the next generation, Generation Z. Come away better equipped to champion the 
this new generation and be equipped yourself to guide them as they navigate this crazy post-Christian culture. There's an interview with me in the Gen Z Lab on doubt. I pray you'll find it helpful. Go to impact360.org for more information. There may not have been the official, you know, doctrine title of penal substitutionary atonement yet, but that doesn't mean that the concept wasn't present. They just may not have had an official name for it yet, but they were, they were all teaching this. And I've recently done quite a bit of research on this myself um, for the, the book that I'm, I'm writing. And you just find it all over the church fathers, all throughout history, uh, even with the words substitution peppered in. They, you know, they're, they're saying Jesus was our substitute. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that, that's such an important point. And, and also what gets wrongly attributed to Anselm is, see, what Anselm was doing was more of a tweak. He introduced the idea of penal uh, satisfaction, but it wasn't like he just came up with this from scratch in in the Middle Ages. And so, yeah, it's like people don't, you know, don't believe everything you read in a blog post or on the internet, you know, mm-hmm. do some research, read the primary sources, and you'll see that the the idea of, of that that strong sense of substitutionary atonement is present from the earliest church fathers. And Clement, that first one that you mentioned, uh, you know, he is was a contemporary of Peter. He was alive probably at the same time. And, uh, and there are people who even suggest there's a verse somewhere in, uh, I think it's one of the gospels that talks about someone named Clement. And some, and some people think they're talking about Clement of Rome there. Yeah, how could, interesting. It, yeah, it could be that he's even mentioned in the Bible. We don't, we can't know for sure, but but I think mm-hmm. that's a very plausible and interesting uh, speculation there. That that definitely could be. So this is somebody who's very close to the earliest um, apostles and 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 or close in time to when Jesus lived. And so so with that uh, kind of laying our foundation. Uh, Brian Zond, in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, lays out a very different view of the atonement. And like I said, I, I find his view, as I'm actually reading his book right now. I'm reading this book. I'm about halfway through. Mm. And what I've read so far is right in line with what I'm reading from other progressive uh, Christian authors. And, and this is sort of becoming a very, um, what's the word? It's, a, it's becoming a very concrete doctrine in the progressive church. And, and Brian Zahn represents it well. And so uh, what is his theory of atonement? And what do you think is the main point that his book is making? Well, um, let me first just say that, you know, what's interesting is Brian uh, Zahn, he makes it sound like he's discovered all this on his own through right. prayer and reflection and Bible study. But it's interesting that he not only agrees with what liberal theologians have been saying for uh, since the 1800s, but um, but he even says it with the same words. And so it's yeah, and I actually think yeah. he's getting some of his stuff from Richard Rohr as well. I think because you'll find a lot of the same language in Richard Rohr books that were written earlier. And uh, in fact, a friend, uh, I have a friend, Marsha Montenegro, who's been on my podcast before, who's been sort of diving into the Richard Rohr pool, reading all of his stuff. Um, she noticed something I had quoted from Zahn and said, well, that, that sounds like that's from the Richard Rohr book. And so we were looking. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot of similarity in language between a lot of these people. And But, but yeah, the, that's a really good point because... It, this goes way back into history. This is nothing new. Nothing that progressive Christians are coming up with now is is really any different. There might be a different, you know, flavor to it or a, or a different application, but 
but the doctrines are really have been around for quite some time. Even if you read Augustine refuting Faustus back in the fourth and fifth century, it's it's like it's like the same thing. They're they're still having to refute the same things. Yeah, yeah, and and I, and it's my theory that God has protected us with the scriptures. Like the Bible, mm. you know, God anticipates all the bad theology of two thousand yes. years in the pages of the scriptures, and so we can let it you know correct us. Um, but yeah, as far as Brian Zahn's like theory of the atonement, he he doesn't like labels, and so he will not ascribe to any particular theory by name. But naturally, he he affirms certain things to be true. And so you can kind of piece together what he seems to be saying. Um, and what he seems to be saying is that the uh, that he has a like an altered version of Christus Victor, where Jesus conquers man's obsession with violence and governmental institutions based on violence. Mm. Um, not so it's not not so much Satan, um, although he'll mention Satan, he'll affirm that that's there, but his focus is against violence. He's a he's a pacifist, although he again, he rejects the label pacifist, but that's because he's like too good for it. It's kind of oh. weird, to be honest. Yeah. Um, he he equates pacifism with the gospel. And so so he thinks it's, you know, it's too you can't call me a pacifist because that's like I'm a big, I'm bigger than that. I'm a bigger pacifist than pacifism is. It's kind oh, of wow. like that. Yeah. But he, um, so it's, so it's anti-violence. Christus Victor is, is his victory over violence. He absorbs all the violence of the world and then, and then, you know, raises from the dead and, and gets no revenge back. And that says, Hey, I reject all violence and sacrifice. Um, that's, so his version of Christus Victor is very unique. Um, it's, it's basically, about denying certain things he doesn't he doesn't want, <laughs> right? So violence, yeah. sacrifice, uh, judgment. Um, in Brian Zahn's version of the moral example, which is the other thing, at least that in my opinion, he has, he has Christ as an example of rejecting, in my opinion, justice. Mm. Um, the, the moral example is I not just that I won't turn the other cheek. Um, that's true, right? I won't turn the other cheek. But he's rejecting the idea that God would exact justice like at all. Mm. Ever, um, not just to those who come to Christ through Christ, but Jesus is an example that that this this kind of justice is just wrong, um, where where God punishes sin. So he emphasizes love here a lot, but it's not his emphasis of God's love that's wrong. It's his denial of God's holiness and justice mm. in the biblical sense. He redefines these these words to mean things they don't really mean, so he can still say he affirms them. So I would say it's like a mixture of a, 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 tw a twisted Christus Victor view along with the moral example view that's um, – mm -hmm. that's that pretty much I'd say is the closest thing you can get in, in my observation. Yeah. But mostly he's he's about what he's against and he's against penal substitutionary atonement. Yes. That's yes. the main point. His main point is he despises this view. He calls yeah. it child sacrifice. Um, which of course ignores the Trinity, ignores the deity of Christ, ignores the the willingness of God to come and bear our sins for us. Um, he also calls it petty. Yeah, that God would would demand justice. He calls it petty. He uh, uses this, a lot of um, really inflammatory terms like that, like whipping boy. Like Jesus was God's whipping boy. He says, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he makes God out to be this divine abuser. And, you know, by saying God required child sacrifice, that's such a manipulative way to say it. Because yep. of course, as we know from the Abraham story, God does not require child sacrifice. In fact, he stopped Abraham. I think the whole point of that story, or one of the main points of, of, of that uh, narrative in the Bible is that God was showing Abraham that that's not what he, he doesn't want you to sacrifice your son, but he'll provide a substitute. And of course, that's 
we're getting hints for the substitutionary atonement for the future. But but yeah, that's one thing that's really struck out to or you know stood out to me as I read Zahn's book, and it sounds a lot like uh, like I said, not to just keep beating this drum, but what I've read in other progressive books. And I just want to give an example here for people just to kind of help make connections. But I've got a quote here from William Paul Young's book, Lies We Believe About God. This is the author of The Shack. Um, oh, he also the, wrote the foreword to Brian Zahn's book. Well, perfect. That that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. And so in his book um, that came out a few years ago called Lies We Believe About God, uh, I think he articulates this really clearly as far as what, what this sort of movement is embracing as their atonement theory. He said, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. The alternative is that the cross originated with us human beings. This deviant device is the iconic manifestation of our blind commitment to darkness. And how did God respond to this profound brokenness? God submitted to it. God climbed willingly onto our torture device and met us at the deepest and darkest place of our diabolical imprisonment to our own lies. And by submitting once and for all, God destroyed its power. And how would we religious people interpret the sacrifice? We would declare that it was God who killed Jesus, slaughtering him as a necessary appeasement for his bloodthirsty need for justice. And so you can see some of that same uh, manipulative language in there, like bloodthirsty oh, yeah. and words like this. Uh, oh, but yeah. And, and what's so interesting about this quote, too, and I don't know where Zond lands on this, but William Paul Young denies original sin. He would say, you know, you you are not depraved by nature. You're maybe wrongheaded sometimes, but then when he's going through his explanation of the cross, he's talk, talking about our blind commitment to darkness, profound brokenness, uh, diabolical imprisonment to our own lives. I mean, that sounds a lot like a sin nature, but but I know that he actually denies that. But I just thought that, that the way he kind of explained that was very similar to what I'm reading in Zahn's book. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you'll get the same stuff from a lot of guys right now. And the stuff I've heard from uh, like uh, Greg Boyd uh, talking about these same issues. Right. In fact, he... Boyd has written like this, I, I think it's about 4,000 pages where he's fleshed out this hermeneutic and he calls it, uh, I think it's called the cruciform hermeneutic, where he's he's basically the hinge of everything is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for uh, they know not what they do. And so everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation gets interpreted through that. And if it doesn't line up with that, then it's not God. And if and I'm t- vastly oversimplifying it, but but mm-hmm. I think that's the basic gist of it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. Profound. And that's in, in Brian Zahn has a very similar kind of approach we can talk about as well. But I think the main point that I get from Brian Zahn's book is that the traditional Christian views on these topics are not just wrong, they're evil and they are the product of sick, bloodthirsty, and violence addicted minds. That's yeah. that's the message. The biblical God, what he what it ends up being is the biblical God is evil. The biblical sacrifice of Jesus is also evil. The gospel mm. is offensive and repugnant because it sends good people to an unjust hell and it sends bad people to heaven that don't deserve it. And it endorses violence and retribution, which he mm. hates. Yeah. Um, and, and coming judgment is ultimately immoral. But so, so most of the book is just demonizing the biblical truth. And then Brian, he offers himself as the, he, he's the solution. He can save you from this. He's going to give you a new version of Jesus, a new way yeah. of interpreting the Bible and a new view of God. And an altered gospel. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Where, where sin is not, it's never paid for. It's just forgiven apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. And basically you just, you need to just kind of be a good person. Yeah. And he even says in the book, 
in fact, I think I've got it here. Oh, yeah, a quote from, from this book that, that speaks to what you've just said. So Zahn says, uh, we are the ones who insist upon a brutal logic that says God can't just forgive. We are the ones who mindlessly say God can't forgive. He has to satisfy justice. But this is ridiculous. He says it's a projection of our own pettiness upon the grandeur of God. Of course, God can just forgive. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not receiving payment for a debt. Forgiveness is the gracious cancellation from of debt. But what hit, what struck me so much about this is when he's saying we are the ones who mindlessly say, well, it's not us. It's it's the biblical writers who said that there has to be payment made for sin. Mm-hmm. And so really when he's demonizing that view, he's demonizing, like you said, the Bible. He's demonizing the apostles and the disciples that walked with Jesus themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's it's such a grand claim. Yeah, when I remember reading that, and this is the verse that came to my mind was Proverbs seventeen fifteen, um, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the mm. Lord. Um, mm. God, God's like, no, I'm, I'm not okay with just forgive without actually dealing with the sin issues. Um, right. No, he deals with them with by his own blood on the cross, and it's a, and it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing because I think what people often fail to think about is that if God doesn't have wrath for sin, then basically Hitler gets away with it. ISIS gets away with it. Every person who's been abused, their abuser is going to just walk. And and really that lets hell into heaven. Because if you don't have a God that's going to keep sin and evil and suffering separated from you for eternity... Uh, then, then heaven isn't going to be heaven. It's just going to be another version of what we've already got here with all the evil and, and suffering. Well, and if you think about even the problem of evil, you know, what often people talk about, uh, if God exists, why is there evil? And you look at the answer that so many other philosophies and religions offer to that question, they might offer an answer. You know, there's maybe detachment, the Buddhist idea of detachment and detaching yourself, or even the, the Gnostic uh, view of, you know, everything material is evil, so, you know, separate from the material world. But in Christianity, and in this view that Zond and others find so repugnant, you have a God that's not just giving us an answer to suffering. He's literally becoming the answer himself. He's stepping into creation, living a perfect and sinless life, and then taking all of that on himself so that anyone who puts their faith, their trust in him, their faith in him, will one day be completely separated from evil. And I mean, that's, that is a beautiful plan. And, and I think that I don't know what I, you know, as I'm reading through Zahn's book, it's like, I, I really try to avoid going to someone's motives because I think it's a lot more helpful just to interact with the arguments, but it's really hard to not to wonder, does he just really not understand the gospel or is he purposely misrepresenting it? Because all throughout, and you mentioned this in your review as well, that that he's really constructing a straw man. And I've talked a bit about this logical fallacy of straw man on my podcast before, but give us a review. What's a straw man? And and how do you think Brian's employing this logical fallacy? I, I think this is a huge, huge issue. And this is where Brian gets most of his work really done. And I'll, I'll say, I think 
Brian Zond and Greg Boyd and the different guys promoting these views. I think they use the straw man, which so the straw man is um, it's it's a technical term. It's an actual like logical fallacy. It means it's it's a bad way of thinking, a way of tricking people into thinking things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. And it's where you substitute a person's actual position or argument with a distorted, exaggerated or misrepresented version of that position or argument. So you make a fake, weak straw man, like a scarecrow, and pretend that in defeating it, you're defeating their real argument. So like a real quick example is I could say, um, to make a straw man of Christians, Christians believe they're going to, ha- they're going to go to heaven because they are self-righteous and they think they're better than other people, hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're like, wait a minute, that's like the opposite of the gospel. You know, that's right. like, yeah. that's definitely not what we believe. That's a straw man. But if you, if you think Christians believe that you're going to despise Christians. Hmm. Um, well, Brian Zahn uses this fallacy all the time. And I can give you some examples on, on penal substitutionary atonement. Listen to how he describes it. He says, particularly abhorrent. And this is, um, oh, I didn't write the page number down. Anyway, this is, this is early on in his book. I think it's the first chapter. He says, particularly abhorrent are those theories that portray the father of Jesus as a pagan deity who can only be placated by the barbarism of child sacrifice. The God who is mollified by throwing a virgin into a volcano or by nailing his son to a tree is not the Abba of Jesus. Mm. I mean, is that, is that actually the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? Right. Is it barbarism of child sacrifice, pagan deity throwing virgins into volcanoes? Like, no, of course not. But if you think it is, then you're going to feel like you have to reject it. And that's what he wants. He yeah. wants you to be so uncomfortable with his characterization, his mischaracterization of good Christian theology that you'll reject good Christian theology. Um, yeah. in, uh, on page 102 in his book, he calls this salvation by divine sadism. Mm. Um, on page nine, he says... Is God accurately represented when depicted as a faceless, remorseless white giant whose anger fuels the raging flames of hell? And, mm-hmm. and we would all say, no, he's not accurately represented that way. But Christian, uh, traditional Christian theology doesn't present him that way. This right. is a strong. So he basically, in short, he uses this straw manning thing to make the biblical view look repulsive so that you will then embrace his unbiblical view. Um, he's interested in ultimately, I think, in shaming you into his new view by strawmanning the biblical view. He never in his book, never, to my awareness, never interacts with actual biblical Christianity. He only beats up his strawman. Yeah. So it's it's effectively it's like he's saying, if you don't want this this racist white giant angry God who's basically Hitler, then you need his new version of God and his new version of Jesus that rejects, you know, not only penal substitutionary atonement, but rejects sacrifices of the Old Testament, rejects large portions of scripture, rejects the necessity of Jesus, um, rejects God having wrath. He calls wrath a biblical metaphor mm. and um, says that if God did have wrath, it would be petty. Mm. And so, yeah, that's that's the manipulation of the strong man. Yeah. And there, and you do find that a lot in other progressive materials. I'm, I'm just reminded of this lecture I watched from Rob Bell, where he's talking about atonement and he says that he can sum up traditional atonement theory in just a few words. And then he says, God is less grumpy because of Jesus. And then the whole audience has a good laugh about it. But it's just like, you know, where do you even begin interacting with something like that when it's just such a false version of the rich Mm. and deep theological significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to just say, oh, just God is less grumpy because of Jesus. And and then yep. people hear that and they think, oh yeah, that does sound like like the pagan I you know idea. All these 
pagan people running around having to satisfy the the god of rain so we'll sacrifice this so we'll have rain or we'll have this or the gods are always angry and and uh and to compare the tr- the one true god with that when really those were counterfeits of what god was was actually doing yeah they're they're petty they're um they're these whimsical you know pagan gods that were supposedly would just randomly attack people people, you know, yes, like yes. In, in one story, they, they, they kill a bunch of humans because they were too noisy. They're just making noise and they couldn't, the gods couldn't sleep. Right. Like, but rather biblically, no, God made us in his image. He's a holy God. He requires for us just to, to follow and obey him rightly. So because of who he is and he will judge sin. And, um, this is, yeah. this is a good thing when we think about some of the atrocities that we've seen in our lives we go, oh, I want him to judge sin. But when we realize how much we fall short of his glory, we realize that we're in trouble too, and we need yes. Jesus. Yes, boy, that's well put. Well, we're out of time for today, but we are going to continue this conversation next time with part two. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to elisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. America, we are endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.